0: Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong. And there is no favouritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. In the ancient Roman world, you could more or less divide humanity into two groups either you owned a slave or you were a slave one or the other that was part and parcel of society there was a seemingly inexhaustible supply of slaves many were captured in war abandoned children were brought up as slaves people ended up falling into slavery as a result of falling into debt and of course if a slave had a child then that child was automatically a slave as well Slaves were relatively cheap, so it was not unusual for even the poorest people to have one skivvy around the house. Slaves had no rights whatsoever. They had no freedom. They had no right to self determination. They were the property of their masters. They could be sold at will, separated from their loved ones, beaten, maimed, or killed with actual impunity from the law. They were physically socially and sexually vulnerable to maltreatment and exploitation. Generally speaking, while the mistreatment of slaves was frowned upon, the reality was that they had no protection under the law at all, and slavery treated people as nothing more than expendable commodities. Slavery these days is illegal, and we can give thanks for that, but it doesn't stop millions of people still being trafficked into slavery. Today we would say that someone is enslaved if they are forced to work through coercion or mental or physical threat, if they are owned or controlled by a so-called employer, if they suffer from mental or physical abuse or the threat of abuse in connection with their work, if they are dehumanised, treated as a commodity or bought and sold as property, and if they are physically constrained or have restrictions placed upon their freedom of movement. According to those criteria, there are at least 20 million people still trapped in slavery in today's world. There are estimates that there are 13,000 people living in slavery in the United Kingdom today. Three quarters of slaves are forced to work in dehumanising conditions without pay. One in four is enslaved in prostitution or the sex trade. One in four slaves is a child. The slave trade flourishes today because vulnerable people are easy targets for traffickers who lure them with the promise of employment, to have a new life in a different country, and who then deprive them of their freedom, and either exploit them directly or sell them on to others for a lucrative profit. The continuing existence of slavery is one of many blights on today's world. And the awkward thing for us as Christians is that the Bible doesn't actually condemn it. Indeed, if you go back 200 years to the debates about the abolition of slavery, many slave owners saw themselves as God-fearing people who had a divine mandate to own other people as slaves because the principle was enshrined within the pages of Scripture. And it is very easy to read those words at the end of chapter five, of Colossians as legitimising oppression. Slaves are to obey their masters wholeheartedly. Anyone who fails to do so will receive due punishment. Masters are told to treat their slaves in accordance with what is right and fair, but if a slave has no rights, then that allows for a fair degree of latitude in terms of what is and is not acceptable. Here, actually, some would say we see religion at its worst, inasmuch as the injunctions concerning masters and slaves lend a veneer of Christian respectability to a practice that should have been totally abhorrent. And if this is the inspired word of God, providing infallible guidance in matters of Christian faith and conduct, does that mean that a religion which condones slavery as which condones slavery? is as evil as the slavery it condemns. (coughs) Excuse me. So clearly this passage is one which challenges us, one with which we have to wrestle. It's true that it doesn't condemn slavery as perhaps we wish it may have done. We may try and excuse the author on the basis that slavery was so much a part of the social structure in those days, it was impossible to conceive of a society without slaves. It was just the way life worked. And anyway, if millions of slaves were suddenly emancipated, what then? Millions begging on the streets? Or millions available to launch a slave revolt like that, like that of Spartacus? Either prospect was equally unpalatable. So perhaps there is an element of realism here in the way this passage declines to issue a call for an end to the practice of slavery. And at the end, Paul wasn't writing a Bill of Rights for slaves, nor was he drafting legislation for the protection of those who are enslaved. But what this passage does is introduce another layer of control and authority. In society you have slaves and they are ruled by their masters but Colossians says above the masters you have one master, one Lord, Jesus Christ. How does the sovereignty, the lordship of Jesus, impact on the social practice of slavery? Does it make any significant difference at all? Well, maybe it does in apparently minor ways, which nevertheless have potentially far-reaching implications. The first thing to note is that the letter bothers addressing slaves at all. Household codes were well known in the ancient world, Men had plenty of advice on how to manage their wives, their children and their slaves. There was no lack of kind of principles to be put into practice. But they were only ever addressed to the men, to the lord and masters of the home, how to govern the other people who were perceived as being subservient to them. Colossians departs from that norm, inasmuch as it does address the wives, the children and the slaves, and what's more, it addresses them first. Now that may just be because the majority of people in church were socially insignificant. But it may just be that giving wives and children and slaves priority in addressing them before the Lord and Master of the household, that bestows on them a significance and a dignity that they may otherwise not have had. Actually, to address them in this way offers them a degree of self-determination they otherwise would not have had. Mind you, what options does a slave have, realistically, when the entire reason for their existence is just ostensibly to do their master's bidding, whatever form that command might take? The answer Colossians gives is that they should obey their masters willingly, not just doing the bare minimum they can get away with, and then only when their master is watching them, but to serve their master single-mindedly and with sincerity of heart. That might seem like a pretty poor deal, simply telling one that if they're a slave, at least as a Christian, they can make sure that they're a good slave. But maybe it goes a bit deeper than that. As a slave, you have no choice whatsoever but to do what your master says. Disobedience leads to all kinds of repercussions. It's not a realistic option. So you have to obey. So, what choice do you have? Well, you can choose how you will obey, you can choose in what way you will do as you are told. And in a subtle way, that has the potential to shift the balance of power. Because you are no longer doing what you're told because you are controlled and dominated by your master and you suffer from the enforced subjugation to his will. You are doing what you do because you choose to do it well. And your role is no longer one of enforced subjugation but one actually, to some extent, of voluntary service. And service offered not to your master according to the flesh, whose authority is limited and that he owns you only for as long as you are alive here on earth, but service offered to your real master, the one to whom you belong for eternity, and who has promised you as a reward for the work you do for him, and an eternal inheritance. It's ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ you are serving allow that to affect the way in which you do your work. And if you hate the master who owns you, then do it for the master who saved you. He is the one you should fear. That business of the fear of the Lord is a difficult thing for us to get our heads around. If we believe that Jesus loves us, why fear him? And some translations get around the, a little bit by talking about reverence. And that's entirely appropriate because Jesus is, is the Son of God and we worship him and we should honour and revere him. And yet, this, this idea of fearing God, fearing Christ, keeps on up, cropping up again and again. Why fear him? Many of us live our lives in fear. We are afraid of other people, we are afraid of the future. We are afraid of what might happen, of what could go wrong. Stop a moment and consider. If Jesus is Lord, if he really is in charge of your life, then ultimately he is in control of what is going to happen to you. The things that you are afraid of are in his hands. Nothing is going to happen to you that he does not allow to happen. So while you might be scared of the unknown, the future is not unknown to him. So if there are fears in your heart, Jesus is the one you need to direct all that anxiety to because ultimately he is the one who decides what happens or does not happen, what will take place or not, what you will go through or what you will be spared. It's an invitation to shift our fear from the unknown, what might happen, to the one who is in charge of what will happen. And if we are communicating our anxiety to him, We can express our fear to him. We can say that we are afraid of what he might make us go through. And that becomes a prayer. A prayer for his overruling. A prayer for his deliverance. A prayer for his grace to cope with what may come. But that can be a source of peace and strength. Being afraid of what might happen achieves nothing because the events that scare us are beyond our control. So we are told instead to fear the Lord, who is sovereign over our futures, and to commit ourselves and our fears into his hands and to trust him for what may come. And should we then be afraid of God because of the implied threat of Colossians 3.25 that anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrong? Well, there was certainly a tendency among later Christians to apply that verse to slaves, the later Christian text, the Apocalypse of Peter, pictures a special part of hell reserved for slaves who did not obey their earthly masters. Yet the concluding comments, there is no favouritism, should give us pause. If there is no favouritism, that necessarily means that when it says anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, well that includes masters then, as well as slaves. It's a transitional expression, beginning to move from addressing the slaves to addressing the masters by saying actually this applies to all of you. It applies to those of you as slaves, but it applies to those of you as masters as well. Because there is no favouritism. And in other words, just as slaves are encouraged to recognise that really everything they do is a way of serving Christ, and so they should do it in such a way as to honour him, so masters are to recognise as well that they have a master above them who will hold them to account. What if their Lord and Master in heaven treats them the way they've treated their slaves? That's the implication of it. And the implications are far reaching indeed. Treat your slaves as you want your master in heaven to treat you. And then we want to look at the injunction for masters to provide their slaves with what is right and what is fair. Other translations talk about treating slaves correctly and fairly, but I think the NIV gets it right here. Masters are to provide for their slaves and do so in accordance with what is right and fair. Providing for their slaves and doing so in accordance with what is right and fair. Slaves are not there simply to be exploited. Actually, the language can be pressed still further, as masters are told to provide what is right and equal for their slaves, because they also have a master in heaven. That's got quite profound subversive potential. If master and slave alike both belong to the same master in heaven, in the sight of God, are they then equal? Could say yes. And if the master is told to give what is right and equal to the slave, what are the implications of that for how they should treat their slaves? Should they treat their slaves As equals? Well, that really is pushing the boat a long way out, isn't it? But the language can be pressed towards that kind of conclusion. And if so, then while Colossians doesn't condemn the practice of slavery as directly as we wish and think it should, the text certainly lays the foundations for seeing all people as equal and treating them accordingly. A claim that was unthinkable in the ancient world. But one which, in our better moments at least, we regard and accept as true today, and the seeds of that are sown in this passage. So maybe this passage in Colossians did provide inspiration for the people who were called circumcellians in the 4th century. They were a Christian protest group who destroyed documents pertaining to slave ownership, who waylaid vehicles on the roads, forcing the master of the vehicle to get out and run ahead, while seating the slave in the master's place. And they did that as an expression of their own Christian commitment. They needed to say they weren't very popular. So outwardly, let may say, this text pays lip service to the status quo and endorses the practice of owning slaves. But beneath the surface, you don't have to dig down very far to see how the affirmation of the Lordship of Christ over all levels the playing field. And calls us all, whatever social distinctions there may be that separate us, to treat each other with respect. To honour people as our equals. Because we all have a master in heaven. And we are to treat each other as we would like him to treat us. And in his eyes, there is no favouritism. There is no distinction between different classes of people. So, treat everyone else as you would like him to treat you. And whoever you are, whatever we do, work at it as working for the Lord, because ultimately, it's him we're serving. It's him we belong to. Every part of our lives, every bit of our beings, every day in the future, It all belongs to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we cherish and value our independence, our freedom. Yet you called us to submit to your Lordship, your sovereignty. Help us to get our heads around that paradox that in your service there is perfect freedom. Help us to understand the way that you call us to use our freedom to serve each other. Where we are bound to to fear would you set us free? Where we are bound to sin, would you liberate us? Where our attitudes to others are wrong, would you set us right? Those of us who are employers enable us to treat our employees in accordance with what is right and fair. those of us who work, enable us to do it wholeheartedly as for you. Lord, all we are, all we will be, belongs to you. Help us to honour you in how we live our lives, how we do our work, and how we treat each other.